Time for Swordplay. Alex, on or around this day in 1901, the Russian Orthodox Church excommunicated Leo Tolstoy. Toy Story? Nick, that's one of my favorite Pixar movies. Why did the Russians got to hate? Did he write the book that was later made into the movie or something? Okay, yeah. That's right. Him and his brother, Fred, Toy Story the uh, <laughs> second. Right. Don't watch the third one, man. That stuff was scary. <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, and I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. Lots of snow coming down today. All right. Uh, winter Wonderland. Hey, on this episode, Colossians chapter 4. We are finishing up the book of Colossians, so if you've uh, hung in there with us, then go back, read chapter 4, maybe reread the whole book, and we're going to wrap up the series on Colossians today. Nick, what do we got? We're going to start off in verse 2, uh, where okay. Paul talks about continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Uh, so let's talk about how does... How does being watchful, I think your translation says keeping alert, how does that uh, relate to being thankful in prayer? Well, uh, my thoughts were this overarching attitude of thanksgiving uh, that we see here in this verse. It's also seen in our last episode in chapter 3, verses 15, 16, 17, and we talked about that. And it seems that being thankful is one of the trademarks of the Christian life. So being thankful keeps us content and being content keeps us safeguarded. I think that's the connection to being alert. Keeps us safeguarded from temptation of needing or wanting more, in the sense that more than what we already have in Christ, more than what Christ has already accomplished, more than what we have in the Gospels. And I think there are false teachers among the Colossians who would say we need more, and we need to be thankful for what we already have in Christ. And the Gospel reminds us that we uh, don't need more. We have all of it in Christ Jesus. Everything necessary for life and godliness, as Peter would say in Second Peter chapter 1. What do you think, Nick? Uh, that's, I think that's right on point. Um, I'll come alongside here and just, uh, you know, Paul was a literary genius, and the structure of this book, I mean, you mentioned right there uh, in the heart of chapter 3, how this theme these these themes keep coming up throughout the right. book, and the end matches the beginning um, very nicely. Uh, Paul began in uh, chapter one, verses three through five. Paul had talked about always thanking God in prayer for the Colossians um, and about the the hope that was laid up for them in heaven, and so. Uh, there, I think you know he had the view of you know being thankful, uh, thanking God in prayer for the Colossians' hope, and that is pointing to the end of time. It's eschatological in its orientation. I think the watchfulness here may be connected to that. It may be uh, that they are to be watchful and alert for Jesus to come back, kind of like their brethren in the, the Thessalonian church. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse two and verse six. You get the same kind of. Uh, connections there about being watchful, being alert, and um, also waiting on Jesus to come back. So, in other words, what Paul is saying then is keep on praying as you wait watchfully for Jesus to come back. I think that uh, may be what's in view here as well. So, does that make sense? 
I, I think that does make sense. And Paul goes on to continue to say that while you're at it, pray also for for me, for a door to be open for the word. Now, Nick, how does God open doors for the word? You know, when I think about this verse, and I think about open doors for evangelism, um, one question that comes to my mind is, yeah, what, what does God have to do to open a door in a certain place that may be closed off um, to the gospel? I think of places like Nigeria, where uh, Boko Haram is kind of running the show. They're they're in Yikes. charge. They're they're a group. We don't hear about them anymore uh, that much. I haven't seen anything on you know the news or anything like that about them. We also don't hear about the 270 girls that they kidnapped back in 2017. Um, I think somewhere like half of them are still missing, and that was a big deal back then. You know, hashtag Bring Back Our Girls and all that. Wow. These are bad guys. They are militant. They're murderous. They're hostile toward Christianity. So I says to myself, self, what would God have to do to open a door in Nigeria for his word to go there? And I thought, well, what if what if God has to take out some bad guys? What if what if some people, a few people, have to die? in order to get the gospel in there, even into Boko Haram-occupied Nigeria. Um, I think Paul says, pray for an open door. I think we pray for open doors. But do we ever really think about what God has to do in order to open those doors? People dying or getting hurt, are we okay with that? Thy kingdom come. What needs to happen for God's kingdom to come in Nigeria? I think of Psalm 109 in verse 8, May their days be few. That's a psalm of imprecation, by the way. Uh, May their days be few. What does that prayer mean as it relates to open doors for evangelism? Hmm, these are tough questions, and I don't know that there are any good answers. Alex, what do you think? Sure. I mean, as you were saying some of those things, what brought to my mind was Acts chapter 12, when an angel strikes Herod dead. I mean, we need some... Some more of that to happen with those Boko Haram guys. You know, for Paul, an open door may have meant imprisonment. Mm. And it's possible for us, you know, today to even possibly see some of this growing antagonism towards Christianity here in the U.S. Maybe not imprisonment anytime soon, but still, would we be able to pray in the midst of suffering for God to open a door for the word? I'd be like, God, open the door to my prison cell. Where's my guardian angel at? You know what I'm saying? That's <laughs> so, right. But when it comes down to it, uh, we do have a limited amount of time while here on earth. And we have to make the most of every opportunity to proclaim truth. Uh, the parallel passage to this is in Ephesians 5.16. It says to make the most of your time because the days are evil. Uh, I think the days are still evil. You're talking about groups like Boko Haram and, and other atrocities going on around the world. Uh, yeah, yeah, the days are evil, and uh, m- from my perspective, I don't think God promises the world to become a better and better place until he returns. That's post-millennialism. I think, no, the days are evil, and we make the most of the time we have right now to proclaim truth. What do you think, Nick? No, I I agree with that. You know, that you mentioned Acts 12, and, you know, Lord, open my door to the prison cell. Peter has that happen. 
Earlier in the chapter, though, James doesn't. James' open door for evangelism seems to be martyrdom, and he glorifies God in that. That's Peter, right. though, he does get the open door, gets that guardian angel to let him out. So. so you have all those things kind of converging in Acts 12. That's interesting. That's right. And uh, according to church tradition, um, Peter eventually ends up being martyred as well. Right. So it just wasn't his time yet. Well, Nick, we have in verse 4, Paul asking for this prayer that he would speak clearly. Does, uh, did Paul not speak clearly at times? How does his speech factor into being inspired? I mean, he's an apostle and a prophet, right? Yeah, um, and it's interesting because even though he had been trained by the best, to be the best, to be a Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul seems to have suffered from Moses syndrome, the, uh, the old excuse of, hey, I don't talk too good. Um, Moses himself had been trained all the wisdom of Egypt too, but uh, um, that's the Moses syndrome. Now, I, I think Paul's case may have been different from Moses' case. Um, Moses was reluctant to go. Paul is always going. But it was something Paul identified in himself. Uh, he talks about this, um, seems rather candidly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 5. He says, uh, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony with lofty speech and wisdom. Uh, he goes on, he says, I was with you in weakness, fear, much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Because he wanted their faith to rest not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So as it relates to inspiration, Paul is God's guy. All right, He was chosen even before he was born. Read Galatians 1 for that. He was chosen before he was born to be the right guy for the right job as herald of King Jesus. So speech patterns and speech acts don't seem to be a factor when it comes to inspiration. On the other hand, Paul acknowledges that his not talking too good actually helped to show the power of God's Spirit at work in him wherever he went. So uh, it's, it's interesting, just kind of that dynamic there that plays out with Paul. Uh, Alex, what do you think? You know, I think for someone who uh, doesn't speak too well, he sure does have some epic speeches recorded in the book of Acts. Yeah. Uh, he certainly had the whole writing and rhetoric thing down, too. Um, as you noted, you know, he's a literary genius in the way he wrote. Uh so that made, you know, made me wonder, was Paul not clear because of his uh, meekness when face-to-face? He says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Um, or was it like Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, that Paul's writings are sometimes hard to understand? Was his speech then in the same way hard to understand at times? Um, I think the answer lies in the parallel passage found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. And there he asks for prayers as well, so that when he speaks the mystery of the gospel, that he speaks with boldness, which he says is how he ought to speak. And so Paul's clarity in how he ought to speak might be his way of saying he needs to speak with boldness. The same boldness, I think, that he expects the Colossians to speak when it comes to answering each person. Uh, boldness uh, is not rudeness. I mean, it's not hateful. It's not arrogant. Uh, boldness is the courage to speak the truth freely despite being afraid. Uh, it's gracious. It's sprinkled with salt for preserving. You're leaving 
room and you're you're leaving a way for the hearer to come to the truth to be persuaded not just demolishing them maybe they have some uh lofty ideas raised up against god that do need to be demolished but you're also sprinkling some salt in there you want to save people and you know paul was afraid sometimes he was afraid sometimes in the book of acts when he gets to corinth um he was afraid and the lord jesus himself appeared to him and said don't be afraid I have many people in this city. Uh, I want you to stay here, and uh, you won't be hurt. And so he does. He does. What do you think, Nick? We want to contend without being contentious, right? That's, um, I think, the boldness without rudeness that you were talking about there. Yeah, that's right. good stuff. He also mentions that um, you have to conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Again, relating this back to prayer, we need to answer quickly, Nick, who are the outsiders? Uh, Non-Christians, that is, those who are outside the church. That seems to be Paul's um, typical way of, or at least one typical way of describing non-Christians. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 6 and verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, there he actually uses the phrase outside the body, 1 Thessalonians 4.12, 1 Timothy 3.7. So non-Christians, that's who the outsiders are. Okay, so their conduct then and their speech, um, it's with the outsider in mind. And how does Paul then relate his own speech in verse 4 to the Colossian speech and how they ought to speak in verse 6? Yeah, if you you look at the text, uh, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, and then verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. For me, I see the connection there being the oughtness, how we ought to speak, how we ought to answer. And so both Paul and the Colossians and us need to be gracious in how we communicate with non-Christians. And yet, as you mentioned, we do need to be bold as well, not shying away from saying the difficult things, having the difficult conversations. Uh, Not only that, there's also the need to fit each conversation to each individual. Everybody's different. And a hat tip to Dr. Flavel Yakely Jr., who's identified three types of communication that people use in evangelism. Uh, one is information transmission, like a teacher giving a lecture, just data input into a computer. The information is just one way, and it really communicates, um, though the words aren't, of course, said, I'm in control, I'm responsible, I figured it out, you listen to me. Information transformation is one method people use in evangelism. Another is called manipulative monologue. This is the salesperson trying to sell a product to another person. Every question that uh, is asked, the person in charge manipulates it to their advantage to get them back on their script. Uh, What do I got to do to get you in this car type conversation, right? I I think most people, they don't like this. Um, And so why why study with a person like that, right? Very quickly, it's like, I'm out of here. I'm just going to pull the plug on this, you know? I'm glad you asked me for a gla- if I want a glass of water. That brings me back to my point about baptism, right? It's just very smarmy. It doesn't uh, it just isn't comfortable. Uh, but Dr. Yakeley points out that the um, the most persuasive 
method of communication is non-manipulative dialogue. This is just a friend discussing a matter of mutual interest with another friend. We're trying to see things from their perspective, and hopefully they're trying to see things from our perspective. And I think this is where soul winning comes in. Soul winning is not you trying to win a contest or an argument. You're trying to win in a courtship uh, type of method. Our Our messages are catalysts. They're triggers which the people in free will can act upon. And I think we really need to keep in mind this is a person, not a prospect. Um, We need to keep all that in mind. So non-manipulative dialogue. I think coming back to this, how we ought to answer people, I think that's the way to do it, how we ought to communicate with people uh, as opposed to the other types of methods. We would see true conversion, not just compliance, temporary compliance. You'll get that from information transmission. You can get that from manipulative monologue. To actually see conversion and real-life transformation, to truly engage in people, I think it's the non-manipulative dialogue. Does that make sense? That was kind of a long technical answer, I guess. There's a a lot to consider and to keep in mind and and balance. I like your, um, you know, you have to know the person you're talking to and sort of form your conversation to fit that individual. I like that. those breakdowns there from Flavel Yakely Jr. I thought that was helpful as well. Manipulative, manipulative monologue, information transmission, and then the non-manipulative dialogue. I like that. It's good. To, it's good to keep in mind. Evangelism can be intimidating. You know, you don't always have to have the answers. And I think that last choice that makes it less intimidating to know that you're just having a conversation with somebody. That's right. So starting in verse 7, we run across, Paul mentions several people by name. The first on the list there in verse 7 is a guy by the name of Tychicus or Tychicus, however you want to pronounce that. Uh, Alex, talk to us a minute about who is Tychicus. I like to say Tychicus. I don't know if that's right, but, uh, you know, that's the way I say it. Who knows? <laughs> to Kikus. Um, well, he's a traveling companion of Paul. He's first mentioned in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, along with Trophimus as being from Asia. This would be Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. He is a part of Paul's entourage that goes back to Jerusalem with him, upon which he is arrested at the temple. As a result, Paul stays in prison in Caesarea for a few years before being transported to Rome for his first Roman imprisonment, and that's where the book of Acts ends. Uh, Tukikus is called a beloved brother and faithful minister in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21, and he acts as Paul's messenger to the Ephesian church and here to the Colossian church. Uh, the verse here in Colossians mirrors the Ephesians passage, adding that he is a faithful servant and a fellow bondservant in the Lord. Tukikus also acts as Paul's messenger in 2 Timothy, which we talked about in our 2 Timothy podcast, which likely uh, there, Timothy is probably at Ephesus. And so again, Tukikus is bringing a message to Ephesus. Um, when Titus is on Crete, Paul says that he plans on sending either Artemis or Tukikus to come and get Titus. So because of guys like Tukikus, the New Testament letters... They were delivered and circulated. You know, Paul wrote a lot of these things while imprisoned. He couldn't just go around freely visiting these churches anymore. 
And so guys like Tukikus, he kept the word going. And I think we owe a lot as Christians today to uh, to men like this. What do you think, Paul? What do you think, Nick? <laughs> you are not Paul. Yeah. Come on, Paul. Speak up. Um, yeah, three things that uh, Paul mentions here about uh, Tukikus is uh, he's a blood brother. He's a faithful minister. He's a fellow servant. Those are three. So one, he's a Christian. Two, he's a um, uh, seems to be a minister among the Christians in Colossae, and a fellow servant. Um, I think is um, kind of a uh, term, a phrase, maybe even a technical term for um, one of those co-laborers with uh, the Apostle Paul. Um, his mission, verse eight. Paul says that he's sending them. I want you, I want you guys to know how we are. Tychicus is going to let um, the Colossians know that, and that he may encourage your hearts. So his mission was to heal hearts by encouraging the brethren there. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's like a, a bit about Tychicus. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I'll I'll take him at our church anytime. We need more <laughs> guys like that. What about Onesimus, Nick? In verse nine, uh, who is Onesimus? Yeah, we've run across this runaway slave before uh, in the book of Philemon. He is another uh, faithful and beloved brother. Uh, that's how Paul, again, describes him here in verse 9. He's one of you. So it seems to be uh, indicative of the fact that Onesimus was a Colossian. And um, he's bringing back information, tell you everything that's taking place here. But uh, he's, that's what he's going to do. He's going to tell everything that's happened to Paul. And Paul, I think sh- this shows that he has a genuine concern for all the Colossians, wants them to know how he is. And Onesimus is going to be one of those who brings back that report, kind of a mission update, if you will. Uh, what else, Alex? What, do we, what else do we know about Onesimus? Well, I think um, you were right on. I mean, according to the letter to Philemon. You can go back to the archives. We did a podcast on Philemon. Onesimus was converted by Paul himself while in prison. And Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon to be reconciled. And Paul mentions in that letter to Philemon that he hoped for Onesimus to return to him, that Onesimus would come back to Paul. And apparently that is what happened since he is being sent again by Paul, but this time he is referred to as one of your number. And so that's one of the clues that makes me think this is after Philemon has already reconciled with Onesimus. Uh, that is, though, unless Onesimus is not just carrying the Colossian letter here, but also the letter to Philemon at the same time. And since Archippus gets a shout-out for his ministry in Colossians 4.17, uh, we assumed in our Philemon podcast then that since he's addressed as well in the letter to Philemon, that he is... Um, a part of the Colossian church, and Philemon is a part of the Colossian church. In fact, um, the congregation of Colossae, or maybe one of the congregations of Colossae, they apparently met in Philemon's house. So that's what makes it possible that Onesimus, along with Tychicus, would be delivering both the letter of Colossians to the Colossian church and the more personal letter to Philemon at the same time. But I opt for my first theory, that reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon has already taken place, and that Onesimus is now returning with another letter to the Colossians from Paul. Interesting thing, uh, one of the apostolic fathers, these are the second and third generation Christian leaders, um, we're talking about the second century writings we have, he wrote a letter 
uh, to the church in Ephesus. This is a guy named Ignatius. He wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he names Onesimus as the bishop of the church in Ephesus. Now, since Ignatius is martyred around 110 AD, that would make Onesimus at the time of Ignatius's writing around 50 years older than whatever age he is at the time Paul is writing right here. Assuming that it's the same Onesimus being referenced, but if it is, we have a very old Onesimus who is a uh, spoken of as a good, uh, beloved bishop of the church at Ephesus. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, what if that's the rest of the story, right? Um, that after reconciliation, he is uh, freed uh, from his slavery and then becomes a, a pillar and a leader in the church in Ephesus. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. Um, how about verse 10? I mean, another guy named Aristarchus. Who is, who is Aristarchus, Alex? Uh, Paul calls Aristarchus his fellow prisoner in Colossians 4.10. Uh, fellow prisoner usually meant that the person either was or has been in prison for the sake of Christ and spreading the gospel, uh, spoken of almost as a badge of honor. But uh, more on the prison connection in just a moment. We first see Aristarchus mentioned in Acts chapter 19, verse 29, at the riot of Ephesus. And there, Aristarchus is called one of Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And we learn from Acts 20, verse 4, 27, verse 2, that uh, Aristarchus is a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And remember, Paul had a difficult time in Thessalonica getting to reason for only three Sabbaths in the synagogue before the Jews, uh, and then after that they caused a riot. So Aristarchus was probably one of the many God-fearing Greeks who were uh, converted. That would be Acts chapter 17, verse 4. And in the riot at Ephesus, back to Acts 19, 29, both Gaius and Aristarchus get dragged into the theater where the Ephesians scream at the top of their lungs, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For two hours. So that would have been quite the intense uh, hmm. <laughs> moment. Yeah. Uh, like Tukikus, Aristarchus is part of the entourage that accompanies Paul to Jerusalem, and that's when Paul is arrested at the temple, held in Caesarea for two years, transported to Rome after that for his first Roman imprisonment. And when he's being transported in Acts chapter 27, verse 2, it specifies that Aristarchus accompanies him. So this guy, he, he sticks by Paul's side. Epaphras uh, is mentioned as a fellow prisoner of Paul's in Philemon chapter 1, verse 23, and Aristarchus gets included as a fellow worker in Philemon 1, 24, along with Mark and Demas and Luke. And so since the names in the letter to Philemon have a lot of overlap with the names here in Colossians, perhaps Aristarchus is called a fellow prisoner here for the same reason that Epaphras is called a fellow prisoner in Philemon's letter. They were willing to stay with Paul wherever he went, even if that was prison. So even though they may not have been arrested or legally charged with anything, those close companions of Paul during his imprisonment get the friendly title of fellow prisoner. What do you think, Nick? Hmm. You've pretty well upholstered the subject. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, deep little background study there on... Aristarchus. Uh, here in Colossians 4, he's specifically mentioned as one who helped Paul, he comforted Paul, um, and also uh, with 
to Caicus's help, he would deliver money that was collected for the saints in Jerusalem. Um, so, yeah, he's he's an important guy, a key key figure uh, in the the missionary work of Paul. Well, Nick, why don't you talk to us about Barnabas and Mark? Who are Barnabas and Mark in verse ten? Okay, let's start with Mark. Uh, so they're cousins, right? It says that Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Uh, Mark always seems like he's kind of a background guy. If you go back and you read his gospel, because he is author of the second gospel, um, Mark 14, verses 51 and 52 are kind of interesting. A little insertion there about a young man who the authorities try to lay hold of him, and he slips out of his clothes and flees naked, Right. Um, most agree that was probably John Mark. It was that's him giving a little personal testimony of where he was the night that Jesus was arrested. But that's it. He's he's a background guy, not even mentioned by name. He's just quietly doing his work, doing his ministry, fulfilling what he's supposed to do. Uh, now he had accompanied Paul and his cousin Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but. I don't know what happened. Seems like maybe he got homesick. He goes back. He leaves. Because of that, Paul didn't want to take him on the second missionary journey, but Barnabas did. And there was such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, they had him going their separate ways. And, I mean, you just sit back and go, wow, man, John Mark, he broke up the power team of Paul and Barnabas. Thanks, Yoko. That's right. But wait. (laughs) What happens is that Barnabas takes Mark, they form a new missionary team, they go to Cyprus. Paul, he forms a new missionary team with Silas, and they go to Syria and Cilicia. They meet Timothy and Lystra. They recruit him to the team. Two brand-new missionary teams go separate directions and produce even more fruit for the kingdom. So, I mean, it ended up kind of turning around being a good thing. Time seems to have healed whatever wound that Paul experienced from Mark's abandoning them. And years later, he sees Mark as important. Uh, he sees Mark as useful for the gospel. He Mark seems to be someone who is, like the others mentioned here, helping and comforting Paul uh, as uh, they uh, as he ministers and, and as he's in prison. And, um, and oh, by the way, don't forget, yeah, he did write the second gospel. So there's that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, good stuff. That's good background to have and a reminder for our audience if they hadn't read the book of Acts lately. And yeah, it is, it's this verse right here in Colossians where we learn Barnabas and Mark are cousins. And that kind of gives you the reasoning behind why Barnabas uh, fought so strongly for Mark to come back with them on the second journey, even though he had left on the first journey. Uh, like you mentioned, he's called John Mark, right? Mark was also known as John. And Luke goes through the trouble of clarifying three times in the book of Acts that this John was also called Mark. It's likely so that he would uh, not be confused with the five other Johns that were well known in the church. Hmm. So it was a popular name, especially among the church leaders and apostles. Paul compliments Mark in 2 Timothy 4.11 as useful for service. Peter calls Mark his son in 1 Peter 5.13. Now, Mark and Peter are also connected in the story in Acts 12, 
uh, verse 12, when Peter escapes from prison after being arrested in Jerusalem by King Herod, uh, an angel helps Peter to escape. Peter goes to Mary's house, which Mary, there's another popular name within the early church, lots of Marys. Uh, this Mary was the mother of John Mark. So the church was meeting in that house and praying for Peter when he shows up at the gate. And since Mary is Mark's mom, but never called Peter's wife, uh, we can assume that Peter then calls Mark his son in a spiritual sense, much like Paul calls Timothy his son. This backdrop is some of the reasoning behind Mark not only being called uh, later in tradition a scribe for Peter, uh, but also, uh, you know, Mark was at times a traveling companion for Paul, and he would have been another resource for Luke in Luke's account of the gospel. And this Barnabas character, uh, he's well known from the book of Acts. His name means son of encouragement. That was his nickname, actually. His real name was Joseph, and he was a Levite. And he was well known for selling his land for the church. And he stuck his neck out for the persecutor-turned-apostle Saul of Tarsus. And he was called even an apostle in one sense of the word, um, I think, in the book of Galatians. And apparently he was well known here, even among the Colossian church. So Barnabas was uh, one of these well-known, encouraging uh, pillars and leaders of the church. Any other thoughts, Nick? No, I think we've uh, pretty well covered the Mark-Barnabas connection, who they are. So let's press forward to verse 11, where we're introduced to Jesus, who is also called Justice. Uh, Alex, talk to us a minute about who is Jesus Justice. Well, uh, this is the only verse that mentions him, so it's hard to say, but um, there are a few other justice-named uh, characters. One was called Barsabas. He was one of the final two candidates to replace Judas in Acts 1. Uh, Barsabas called Justice. But uh, it doesn't seem like to be the same guy. Another one, there's a Titus Justice in Acts 18. doesn't appear to be the same guy. So, what do we have here? We have just this one verse, and from this verse, we do know that this guy, whoever he was, was a fellow worker in the kingdom of God, uh, and this often had some sort of mission, missionary or ministry-type aspect associated with that title. Uh, what I found interesting, though, is Paul says that he's from the circumcision, and the circumcision is usually, that's a derogatory term for the group of Jews uh, who had infiltrated the church trying to Judaize the Gentile Christians. But Justice here, he stands out as being different from those other guys. And uh, Paul seems to note him as an exceptional Christian with a Jewish background who brought great encouragement to Paul uh, along with Mark. So what do you think, Nick? Yeah, for this being the only reference to the guy i mean way to dig that's that's good stuff um, <laughs> uh yeah nothing else is is known about this guy uh, all we know is what we have here he's um we know he's been a comfort to paul uh just again like uh the others on this list he has brought comfort uh to paul in his affliction well, Nick, who do we have then uh, next? I think it's Epaphras. Tell us a little bit about Epaphras in verse 12. Yeah, I think we would call him uh, a prayer warrior. He always uh, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. That's how the NIV puts it. I like that. Um, two things he prayed for, uh, that you may stand mature. So he prayed for their maturity, uh, that they would grow up in Christ, and also that they'd be fully assured of all the will of God. Um, 
as we've mentioned before, he is probably the guy who planted the church at Colossae. Uh, you can see 1 verse 7 for more on that. Uh, what, I mean, th- think about his what he's praying here for, uh, these Christians. He is praying for their maturity. He is praying for full assurance of the will of God. These are spiritual things, and these are deep things, which I think it might be good if, if we adopted that kind of prayer life and praying for those kinds of things. Uh, for the brethren, but uh, uh, what else do we know about Epaphras, Alex? Tell us a bit more. Yeah, uh, podcast number one, we mentioned how, of Colossians 1, we mentioned how Paul says the Colossians learned the gospel from Epaphras, and now we see here that Epaphras has a deep concern for also Laodicea and Herapolis as well. So we mentioned in that Colossians 1 podcast, Epaphras probably studied under Paul in Ephesus at the school of Tyrannus, upon which he then took the gospel back to Colossae, Laodicea, and Herapolis. So tell us uh, quickly, Nick, what connection does Colossae have with Laodicea and Herapolis? Herapolis was a city about six miles from Laodicea, about 10 miles from Colossae. So they're, they're relatively close by. Um, Herapolis was specifically a, a hotbed for the mystery religions and all the occultic practices and things like that. In fact, that whole Lycus Valley was just like full of the dark arts and magic. So I think these three cities probably all had that in common with all these mystery religions and all the uh, the dark arts and things like that. Uh, what do you say, Alex? Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, Colossae, Laodicea, Herapolis, they were all sister cities. They created sort of a tri-city area down in the uh, Lucus River Valley in Asia Minor. Their close proximity to each other would have made it uh, natural for Epaphras to travel between all three cities spreading the gospel, and thus his concern for all three of them. Uh, Listeners may remember that in the book of Revelation, Laodicea is the last of the churches written to in Asia Minor and are famous for Jesus calling them lukewarm water that he'll spit out of his mouth. Laodicea had to pipe in water from the hot springs of Herapolis and also from the cold springs of Colossae. But all that water became nasty and lukewarm by the time it reached Laodicea. Mm, room temperature water. Yeah, extra calcified. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> so there's the background for those cities. Um, Nick, verse 14, who is Luke and Demas? Let's start with Dr. Luke, the physician. Um, actually called that here. He's loved by Paul. He's the beloved physician. Um, this is Luke who wrote half the New Testament for us. Luke and Acts, that makes up half the New Testament, by the way. So he was uh, quite uh, voluminous in his writing. He's a constant companion of Paul. Oh, um, I don't know uh, what else to say here, except that it's interesting. We have two gospel writers, John Mark, Mark, and Luke, who are traveling companions of Paul and mentioned in relatively close proximity. Wow, that's impressive to me. What do you got, Alex? Yeah, if Luke is also the same uh, Lucias of Kurene in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, and Romans chapter 16, verse 21, then that means he was also at the church in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their missionary journeys. 
not only does he write the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, but likely acted as a scribe for Paul at different times. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this theory, Nick. I like the theory that Luke actually wrote Hebrews with the yep. guidance of Paul. Since Love that the, theory. Yeah, I mean, the letter abounds with medical terminology, so that makes a lot of sense. You have a close traveling companion, medical background, Hebrews is the uh, rhetoric of Paul in the style of Luke. I think that makes a lot of sense. Might be why it's not uh, addressed uh, as, its, as its author, I don't know. But Luke is said at one time to be the last of the faithful entourage to stay by Paul's side. We saw that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. So what about Demas, Nick? Yeah, uh, Demas is kind of the tragic story. Um, he abandons his ministry. Uh, we read about that in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. And um, the sad epitaph for his life is he loved the world. Hmm. Demas, man, he was one of the crew. He was one of the ones Paul could count on. He was mentioned alongside these other leaders, Luke, Aristarchus, Mark, Epaphras, not just here in Colossians, but also in Philemon. So what happened? Well, something happened. Yeah. He abandoned Paul. And I hope this means that he didn't also abandon the faith. Maybe he just got scared like John Mark did during Paul's first missionary journey. Who knows? Yeah. But it is definitely, like you said, a sad ending with what we do have written here in the scriptures. Nick, who is, in verse 15, this character named uh, Nympha, or Nympha, and what significance is there to the church meeting in her house? So one theory is she was a, she may have been a wealthy single woman, maybe a widow. Um, What I do know is she apparently had uh, a hospitality ministry. She was willing to open up her church, uh, her house for the church, uh, as is said here, the church in her house. So um, they didn't have church buildings back in the day, you know, on every street corner like we do today, right? So they had to meet in homes, uh, and I think that's Alex something you guys can relate to up there in Minnesota uh, quite well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We uh, we meet in our home every every Sunday for. Uh, worship and uh, Bible study. And uh, Nick and I, I, we come from the uh, restoration movement background from the Churches of Christ. And up here in the Twin Cities, not a whole lot of congregations of the Churches of Christ. In fact, in St. Paul City limits, um, we're the only Church of Christ. Uh, There are some out in the suburbs, but you have a metro area of two plus million people but less than a thousand members of the Church of Christ. So, plenty of churches on the corners for Lutherans and Catholics, but uh, not many people have heard of the Church of Christ. If you ask them, they'll say, "What kind of Lutheran church is that?" <laughs> yeah. It's, well, not a Lutheran church, but uh, let me tell you. Well, in this verse here with with Nympha or Nympha, there actually seems to be some textual variance in the manuscripts. The word. Uh, is nymphon, and it could be translated either nymphas, which is the masculine form, or nympha, which is the feminine form. Also, it says here, her house is where the church meets. But there are early manuscripts that read their house, plural. 
So interesting, uh, just what's going on here, I don't know. Either way, churches often met in people's homes. And there, I bring this up because there are some feminist scholars today who would argue that if a church met in a woman's house, then that meant the woman of that house was in charge of that church. And this somehow negates Paul's instruction for women not to teach or to have authority over a man. And this is the line of reasoning for getting women into the pulpit and into the eldership and all of that. Um, How a woman's hospitality all of a sudden equates to women being elders and teaching over men in the church is a hermeneutical mystery I have yet to understand. So (laughs) perhaps the, the feminist scholars are just too enlightened and I'm not capable because I'm a man. So a middle-class white man at that. I'm the most evil person in the country right now, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, just a no, couple we'll of put, things there yeah. to be aware of. Well, Nick, verse 16, uh, what letter then? Paul says he sends a letter to the Colossians, share it with the Laodiceans, and their letters share with you. What letter did Paul send to the Laodiceans? That's a good question. Was it uh, Philemon? Was it Colossians? Was it a Proto-Ephesian letter, or was it Ephesians itself? I mean, there's all kinds of different theories about what exactly could have be what it could have been. Um, I'm of the opinion, whatever letter. Um, uh, I'm of the opinion that the the, the letter of the Laodiceans is the law is lost that it wasn't like the other um, epistles that we have from Paul. Uh, It was not an inspired text. It was Paul, but just Paul at his best and not inspired. And therefore, we don't have it because it's not necessary for us in terms of the faith and salvation and things like that. It's my own personal take. Um, But anyway, what do you have to say about it, Alex? Well, um I think if we had it, it would be called Laodiceans. <laughs> Deep right. thought for the day, right? I don't know why it would seem crazy for us not to have all of Paul's writings. I mean, we clearly don't. And I think that, um, as you expressed, Nick, sometimes we wrap up the doctrine of inspiration with the existence of manuscripts. So you say if we uh, don't have it, that means it wasn't inspired and we don't need it. Um I'm going to take the opposite side. I'm going to say that if we were hypothetically to find a copy or copies of uh, other Pauline writings and they were authentic, then I, I believe it would be another inspired writing. If it meant we had to then make some adjustments to certain doctrines, not the gospel, of course, that would be inconceivable. (laughs) but doctrinal adjustment I think would be okay in light of new discoveries of inspired apostolic documents now we likely won't find anything new but it's possible what's even more probable is that if we did find a Laodicean letter from Paul it would likely look like a just a slightly different variation of Ephesians and Colossians that would be my guess Hmm. any thoughts there Nick so, I mean, you're not saying that every time Paul put pen to parchment, it was an inspired text, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, yeah, I don't... Because I, I, I think inspiration was an intermittent thing, right? It wasn't that they were on constantly 
24-7 inspired, and everything <laughs> they said and wrote was inspired. I think it was an intermittent thing. And so that's why, you know, while Paul penned these letters in prison, um, we have three, what, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, four, I guess, Philippians as well, that were inspired. And this fifth one, uh, Laodiceans, was not. And that's because inspiration is not a, 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 a constant thing that, that's, you know, it's on all the time. But I think my view of inspiration is that if Paul said something regarding uh, doctrine, then it was inspired. So, so when he spoke ex cathedra, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Paul wasn't the Pope. Peter was. Come on, Nick. You know that. <laughs> well played. <laughs> yeah, when he speaks concerning doctrine, uh, either by word of mouth or by letter, I think Paul spoke by inspiration. And so uh, we should do some podcasts on that. That'd be good. Let's, de- let's define what is inspiration. That could be a can of worms. But, uh, <laughs> yes, that's a fun one. There's all kinds of theories. <laughs> yeah, there is. Um, so, yeah, but I think if, if we find a Laodicean letter, I mean, if we find a grocery list written by Paul, that's probably not inspired. It has nothing to do with doctrine. But if we find a letter to the Laodiceans and to the church and, and what was going on there, then I think it would be inspired. Um, and uh, like I said, I, I, it's inconceivable to think that it would have something different in terms of gospel. Uh, but it would just be more information to fine-tune what we already know to be true from the other letters. That's what I think anyway. So, uh, yeah, that's that. Speaking there of, it is. There it is. Speaking of New Testament letters, though, Nick, uh, were they all meant to be circulated? Not necessarily. It doesn't seem like all of them were. I mean, uh, I think of 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, uh, which were very personal. Um, it seems like they were, they, they may have been intended to be Read in public, you get some hints of that, like in First Timothy. But again, they were they were quite personal um, in their tone, and so I don't know that they were necessarily meant to be, you know, spread around like that. And yet, that's exactly what happened, and we are uh, blessed to have those letters. So, um, what say you? You know, I think most of these letters were meant to be circulated. I mean, we at least have here in this verse, Colossians 4.16, a clear intention for that to happen with the epistles sure. in Asia Minor. So right. at the very least, we do have that. Likewise, um, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation are written to each church, but it's concluded with an exhortation for all of the churches to hear what the Spirit says. So whether each letter, letter was intended to be circulated or not, uh, I think that's, that's what we see. That's what happened. Um, And I thank God that that's what did happen. You know, most of the New Testament um, can be reproduced just by quoting the apostolic fathers. That's impressive because the New Testament was finished by the end of the first century. So when we look at second century writings of Christian leaders, and we can just from their writings reproduce most of the New Testament, uh, that's pretty impressive. That shows you that there was a, a wide circulation that took place very early on in the church. Definitely. Well, Nick, who is Archippus, verse 17? Um, well, we we don't know what his ministry was. Um, it appears he may not have been doing it. That's why Paul has to command him, see the, to, hey, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. Why else command it, except that he's not doing it? So... Um, 
why he wasn't fulfilling his ministry, you know, again, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why people drop out of stuff all the time, but he had a good ministry going. It seems like maybe he wasn't doing it, and so Paul ends up saying, hey, you know, get busy, fulfill your ministry and all that. Um, so that's a, that's a little bit about Archippus. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, uh, he's called a fellow soldier in the book of Philemon right at the very beginning, and apparently... Uh, some time has passed between Philemon and Colossians, and this soldier needed a little pep talk. Yeah, His ministry must have been at Colossae. Maybe he was left as a leader after Epaphras had established the church there. Uh, I don't know. That's just my guess. Perhaps Paul's refutation of the false teachers at Colossae is a sober warning also to Archippus to stand up to these guys. Hmm. How, how is it that you're here, and yet these guys— are infiltrating and pulling people away and doing all this crazy stuff. I think maybe that was, uh, could be part of what Paul has in mind. It's like, get to work, stand up to these guys. Uh, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be one of the guys there that we can trust. Well, Nick, what does it mean then? Okay. You know, he's the guy who can, who they can trust. He's supposed to fulfill his ministry. What does it mean to fulfill your ministry? So to fulfill something means to complete it fully, to achieve something leaving nothing undone. And so this takes constant, unswerving faithfulness to the mission of God, to seek out and find people who are willing to be obedient to Christ and to live according to His will. Um, I think that's, that's an important thing. So he says, fulfill your ministry. You're here emphasizing you need to take ownership of this. This is a ministry God is calling you to engage in. God has called you to do this work, not someone else. Uh, and also, don't try to fulfill someone else's ministry. That's their ministry. Yours is your ministry. And so uh, fulfill your ministry. Ministry is always practical. Uh, the Greek term here is where we get our English word uh, deacon from. So this is special service, specifically your special service that is rendered to others on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the charge to all Christians, I believe, is to fully complete our specific service unto the Lord. I think that's a bit about what fulfill your ministry means. I think Want that, to toss anything in there? No, I think that's good. That was a good... Uh, Explanation, you know, in light of the short amount of time that Paul says we have here on earth, it seems like we are always continually needing to fulfill our ministry, use the, the most of every minute we get. Now, Paul says at the very end of the letter here, Nick, yeah, that he is writing this greeting with his own hand. And we've touched on this before in other podcasts, but uh, just for the sake of our listeners, why would Paul mention his handwriting? It might be akin to like our modern day stenographers. Just so, there was someone who was there writing down what Paul dictated. Um, the big word for it is an amanuensis, kind of a secretary there with parchment and pen and all that in hand. Um, however, when it came to the last line, Paul wrote it himself. I, Paul, write this greeting with my hand. And so that was an authenticating mark. It was intended to be kind of like a signature on the, the last line here uh, for that, just fully affirming, confirming that it did come from the apostle. What do you think, Alex? 
You know, this could actually go into our uh, hypothetical podcast about inspiration, you know, because you have not Paul writing the whole thing. You have an amanuensis writing it. So is he writing it word by word, like Paul is dictating word by word, write this, 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 and he's not deviating at all? Or is Paul saying, I need to communicate X, Y, and Z, uh, fill it out for me, and I'll approve it? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. We, don't, I mean, an amanuensis was used in several different ways, so... That would be another can of worms to open. It's interesting to wonder if Paul had foreseen the possible danger of people forging his work, and this uh, signature of his prevents fraud from happening. But then again, we mentioned in our Second Thessalonians podcast, this may have already been happening. Yeah. Paul says in Second Thessalonians 2.2, 2, don't be alarmed by a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Uh, Paul goes to the trouble to point out his signature. In 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. But we also know that Paul used a scribe, like you said, an amanuensis. Uh, maybe because of the theory that he had poor eyesight, thinking about Galatians 6.11, where he says, See with what large letters I write with. So very interesting uh, stuff. I'm Again, I'm glad that he wrote the way he wrote. Probably made it harder for copycats to... Um, pass off fake letters in the decades to come (laughs) well Well, yeah wrap up wrap down here we go um we've come through the epistle to the colossians um what are we walking away with here alex what are some major takeaway lessons from colossians you know nick there's nothing new under the sun new forms of old heresies will come in waves as we go through the centuries But there are truths in Colossians that still hold strong. Christ is creator, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Uh, He is distinct from all of creation, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. (laughs) Only through him are we saved, transformed, and eventually glorified, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. His death was intentional, in conquering evil beings. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. His resurrection is operational in removing our sin in baptism. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And until he returns at the resurrection, his reign will be celestial as he brings many sons to glory. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And he's also... God in the flesh, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. <laughs> That's right. I mean, so the deity of Christ uh, is accentuated several times in this um, epistle, and that's because apparently there were some who were trying to make Christ less than deity. And so Paul, he emphasizes that over and over um, uh, you have uh, Colossians chapter 1, 15 and following. He does it again in chapter 2. That's why all that talk about the Godhead dwelling bodily was in there. And so since Christ is God, to the glory of God the Father, he is supreme. And the supremacy of Christ was um, accentuated in this epistle as well. Christ is supreme over everything, all rulers, authorities, powers, dominions, etc. Um, so Christ is supreme. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And also, let's not forget our union with Christ, how our lives are hid with Christ. Um, 
sin has been forgiven. Uh, you mentioned that, Alex. We've been reconciled to God. But since all this is true and we have union with Christ, we must also live in constant contact and communication with God. That's how the book kind of closes with this discussion about prayer uh, early on in chapter 4. So since we have this union with God, we must be uh, in constant contact, constant communication with our God, with our Lord, uh, who is, as you said, Alex, Lord over all creation. So Christ, we mentioned this equation throughout this epistle, Christ plus anything else equals too much. He's all we need. He is supreme. And yeah, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. That's right. He's the embodied logos, the invisible made visible. We should make a t-shirt that says, uh, Delatio. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Delatio. It could be our hashtag handle. We could just like throw out uh, Christian memes, hashtag Delatio. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, we'll get on that. But in the meantime, yes. <laughs> we are out of time. Feel free to go into the um, iTunes store and also the Google Play Music store. Search Swordplay, and you'll find the podcast in those places. And you can listen to the podcast, download the episodes, leave a review, help us get the word out about this podcast. And send us any questions you may have to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And um, we'll see you next time, whenever that is, whatever we talk about on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.